You're listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com. Good morning, everyone. Um, it is good to be with you guys today. Um, thank you, Bradley, for uh, singing for us and for um, praying that prayer for the blessing of God's Word. So our text today is 2 Peter chapter 2. Verses 7 through 10, with a little bit of, uh, of 6 thrown in there as bonus. Um, I'll read that for us, but I'm actually going to read the whole passage um, that this falls within. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until a judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds um, that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Um, so let's, let's pray, pray for a blessing of God's word yet again. Um, Lord, we love you and we thank you for um, this morning to gather together to hear your word. Um, God, we um, thank you for your church, um, which is a gift to us designed to protect your gospel witness um, in the world. And it's designed to, to sanctify us, to make us... Um, more holy. And so, Lord, we just thank you for, um, for that. And God, we, we just ask that you would speak to us um, clearly and um, gently as that's needed, but also um, firmly, because, Lord, your, your, your word um, speaks to us that you pour out wrath and judgment on the whole world and cities. And so, Lord, um, we, we need help to hear that. Um, with, with some of our sensibilities that we bring um, that uh, are not expectations that we should have of you. And so, Lord, we just ask for that. Um, Lord, we just ask for the blessing of the reading of your word. So give us um, ears to hear and eyes to see. And so we ask that in your name. Amen. Um, so today's uh, discussion is going to center around the end of this paragraph in Second Peter in which uh, Peter is recounting God's faithfulness through the ages, through the centuries, um, of, um, <laughs> of, of the world. And so um, it's, it's really interesting because when you're talking about uh, having a hope for um, salvation in the future and a hope for um, being preserved, uh, the first texts that I'm, I'm going to think of are not uh, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, you know, Noah being preserved and, 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 and Lot being preserved as well. Those are not the first texts that I'm going to think of. I'm probably going to go to something like uh, Romans 8, in which, you know, every, uh, in, in which the salvation that we have is, is uh, secured and assured. Um, but Peter, Peter goes to the Old Testament. And if you do, I, I did this last night, if you do a word search on the ESV app uh, of the word wicked, if you type in the word wicked on the ESV app and search the, the entire ESV Bible, the first five references are going to be from the exact text that Peter's citing here, <laughs> uh, which is a really 
interesting uh, fact, I guess. It's kind of a fun fact. So if you search wickedness, you're going to get uh, the reference from Genesis 6, which is talked about um, in verse 4. For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. That's the story. He's gonna t- uh, you're going to see Sodom and Gomorrah, and you're also going to see um, the, the, the flood that results from um, that discussion in Genesis 6. So... Um, <laughs> Today we're talking about the, the um, justice of God in dealing with those things and how that's right and good, but also um, how you as a believer have a great hope in that uh, God preserves you. Um, just like God preserved Lot and God preserved Noah, he will preserve you in the final judgment as well. And so our sermon summary today is going to be... Uh, this sentence, I guess, and it's going to break up into our three points. But this is our, this is our summary for today. This is our thesis for the sermon. Uh, thesis just means like a summary or the main point for you kiddos. Um, so this is our thesis for today. Uh, God delivered Lot. Therefore, God can both deliver the righteous and punish the unrighteous, particularly the false teachers. God delivered Lot. Therefore, God can both deliver the righteous and punish the unrighteous, particularly the false teachers. Um, and so that's, um, that's our summary for the day. Um, so, yeah, when we, when we approach this text, um, Peter is he's giving hope to a people who are experiencing um, Wolves among the sheep, uh, false teachers have risen up among the people of God and are uh, perplexing the people. They're, they're leading them astray. And uh, Peter, in his final testimony, assures us, he actually gives us assurance that this will happen. And we, sh- we shouldn't be surprised when this happens because he assures us earlier on in chapter 2. Uh, false teachers are going to rise up. Um, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow those. Many will follow their sensuality. Again, this is an assurance. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So this is uh, <laughs> this is something that Peter is um, specifically addressing in this text. So all of that craziness is happening in the early church, and um, the people of God need to hear that God preserves them, and that's certainly true for us today, um, because if you look at any. Uh, Christian bookstore uh, or Christian section of the bookstore, you're, you're going to see some stuff that's going to um, not affirm a biblical view of God. It's not going to affirm a biblical view of, uh, of finances or holiness. You're going to see um, some faces of false teachers if you look in the Christian bookstore section. And so um, along those lines, this, this text is relevant to us today. So um, point number one, God delivered Lot. This is going to cover verses 7 and 8. So God delivered Lot. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So this text, Peter's giving commentary specifically on Genesis 19. And I think it would do us well to read all of that, especially on the heels of um, hearing about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah last week. So let's go to um, Genesis 19. And we're going to read 1 through 16 or so, and then I'll read verse 29 as well, because that's going to be important for us today. 
Um, <clears throat> so when Peter cites a source, um, it, it would do well for us to go to that source. And that's, that's why we're going to Genesis 19. So Genesis 19, starting in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom, of the, Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, uh, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not yet known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew, back, uh, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, and brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. Then they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Lot lingered after hearing this great judgment. Um, but he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and sent him outside the city. Um, we'll skip down a little bit to uh, verse 23 and so forth. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. That's the city he escaped to. Um, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Um, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked up, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst to overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So Peter is commenting on all of that and saying, just like God saved Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah from destroying it, he's going to preserve his church um, through the ages, even in the midst of uh, some of the most agonizing uh, times. So um, it's, it's interesting that um, in verse 7 of Second Peter, 
um, it says that, um, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, and so forth, um, it, it says that Lot is righteous. And that's kind of, that's, that's a point of contention uh, amid some of the commentators. Uh, they have different perspectives on Lot's righteousness. Um, and we can kind of see why from this, from reading the story earlier. Um, I mean, it starts out, he's at the gate of the city. He sees these traveling men and says, hey, you guys look like me. You're travelers like me. Come into my house and I'll take care of you. Um, and then later on when the men of the city are knocking on his door, um, he goes out and meets them there um, when they're trying to come in and uh, engage with the men that Lot is hosting, and he says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So he's, he's saying, I beg you, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. He's, he, is, he obviously has a sense of righteousness um, within himself that is kind of perturbed by uh, the acts of the men of the city. But then it seems to take a turn. Uh, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them and do them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, um, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Um, so what's that about? <laughs> um, we'll leave that open for a moment. Um, and then skipping down in Genesis 19 again, uh, the men of the city say, they, they say, hey, we're about to destroy the city. And then Lot lingers. He lingers. Uh, we're about to destroy the city for um, its wickedness, and Lot stays behind. Um, he seems somewhat attached to the city that he was just um, a- appealing to them because he was morally perturbed by them. Um, so Lot is a uh, morally mixed character, and yet God saves him. And so what? how does that work? Well, you have to you have to read the before and the after because this story in Genesis is kind of a big sandwich. Um, the story really starts in chapter 18, um, where Abraham is interceding for his kinsman Lot, um, and then later down in verse 28 it says, "So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, He remembered Abraham." So God is remembering the uh, prayer and intercession of Lot's kinsman, and He is preserving. Uh, Lot on his behalf, and so that's 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 why it says he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. So, Lot is a morally mixed character. Um, he is both he both has a sense of internal righteousness, where it's like this is really bothering me that these men are knocking on my door for the reasons that they're knocking on my door right now, um, which is real. He he actually uh, he actually believes that that is actually a righteous thought for him to have. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the way that he deals with that is, is imperfect. Um, he, he's offering his daughters in the place of these men. And um, that's, uh, that's, you might say, problematic. Because uh, <laughs> obviously that's, that itself is, is morally problematic. That's, that's not the right thing to do. And so if God is saving Lot, and if, as Peter says, Lot is righteous, um, it's not going to be because Lot himself is completely morally perfect within himself because, he's, he's, he, again, he has a mixed uh, nature. And uh, it says that 
God remembered Abraham. He remembered his kinsman who was praying on his behalf. And remember, Abraham is this father of, uh, of the covenant, and uh, Lot falls uh, under, his, under his prayer. And so um, along those lines, that's, that's how Lot is considered righteous uh, covenantally. It's that he, he belongs to Abraham. He's Abraham's kinsman. And just, I mean, to pause before pressing on to our own text today, um, you and I should feel the weight of having righteousness imposed on us from a kinsman um, because Jesus is your great Abraham who is praying for you and who is, uh, his, whose righteousness you actually possess. And so when God looks upon you and us in our situation, when uh, you know, we're surrounded by uh, righteousness and we're sort of perturbed morally and emotionally and all these things, and are also uh, mixed in terms of our righteousness, God doesn't see um, your mixed righteousness. He sees Christ's full righteousness. He looks through Christ and sees you. And so that is the basis of how Lot is delivered, um, is through Abraham, and that's, that's how it is for us as well. So, um, verse 7, and if he rescued righteous Lot, that's how he's righteous, um, is through the intercession and through the headship of his kinsmen. Um, Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So, Lot was... Um, again, he was morally perturbed by the men of the city. Um, he, he recognized the issue of sin that was around him, and he appealed to them to, to cut it out. <laughs> he uh, asked them, or rather said to them, to stop. And so along those lines, um, Lot um, was... Things weren't just fine for him, and that's what God saved him out of. Um, there, were, there were men knocking at his door. Um, and coming after him. And so uh, the situation out of which Lot is saved is, is not something that is uh, trivial or, or kind of cliche, like, you know, my boss and I aren't getting along. Um, rather, it's, it's something really, it's, it's a picture of just great distress. distress. Um, Lot is greatly distressed, and that's, that's the situation from which uh, God delivers him. So he's greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Um, so again, Lot's uh, internal state, he's, he was distressed about it. And so at this point, um, that, that was the final like if statement in this long line of if statements in the paragraph. So you see if, 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 if. So if God didn't spare the angels, um, if God didn't spare the ancient world, um, and if God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, and then sort of accompanying those um, pictures, those ifs or other ifs, it's like if God preserved Noah and if God preserved Lot, um, well, what, a, what does an if always point to? It always points to a then. You know, what goes up must come down. Um, and that's where we find ourselves in verse 9, which is point number two. Therefore, God can both deliver the righteous and punish the unrighteous. 
God can both deliver the righteous and punish the unrighteous. So verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So the Lord knows how to rescue. When it says knows how there, um, we, you, can, you can replace that word uh, knows how with has the ability to or is able to. And so when you do that and read it, it says the Lord is able to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And so all these ifs that have stacked up in the paragraph before um, start to form a pattern. It's a pattern of how God has uh, built the world. Um, and it's a pattern of how God is actually um, delivering his people from the sinfulness um, of uh, people who pursue the world. And so this pattern of uh, people rising up against God, um, those people um, through their unrighteousness, causing God to respond justly and proportionally with wrath. Um, that's something that's very real. That's going on here. And then God can deliver his people. He can cause the people to be righteous from that and deliver them from his, his own wrath. And so um, along those lines, that's the pattern that has been established in this paragraph. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So God can do both. He can both um, pour out his wrath in response to sin, and he can deliver people uh, from his wrath. And so it's interesting here, again, because Peter is looking backwards at uh, redemptive history. He's looking at what God has done in the past to point forward to a final uh, day of judgment, um, which he talks about at the end of verse 9. He's keeping them under punishment until the day of judgment. So he's looking backwards to point forward to give us actually present hope um, here and now. God is looking back, or Peter is looking backward to see God's faithfulness in the past, which he's proven, um, and that bears witness to the future uh, day of judgment in which God will um, separate righteousness from unrighteousness in the world, and um, that gives us hope here and now, today. So, the question then is, uh, how's that work? How, how do we get uh, hope from looking at these ancient Mesopotamian texts that, um, that, that point forward to a reality that, that hasn't been realized yet, um, and then how does that give us hope today? Well, the... <laughs> The issue at hand, or the, how that works, is believing and acknowledging that God is able and he is the source of your hope. It's God, it's God who knows how to deliver a people for himself from the wrath um, that he pours out on unri unrighteousness. It's God who is able to do that. Um, we can look amongst ourselves and look at our own situations and think, um, you know, goodness, how could, how could this ever be made right? I could, never, I could never make this right in my own power. I'm, I'm not enough, and there are all these people um, against me. Or This situation is just you know, above my pay grade for me to deal with. Um, but it's not above God's. And uh, God and his infinite power and his loving nature is 
what grounds the hope of uh, that, that Peter is calling us to look in, uh, to look into and grab onto. So the ability of God is the uh, grounding of our hope. So the two things that God is able to do at the same time, namely the delivery of the righteous and the punishment of the unrighteous, um, those those things, um, they ought to have bearing on us today because... Um, God has spoken, and um, you are in him if you're in Christ, and he, can, he will deliver you not only finally and ultimately in the end, um, you will not only be glorified, but you will also, uh, we're given assurance of sanctification uh, elsewhere in scripture because you know, God is refining you here and now. He's, he's working actively in your own life and in your own situation to um, cause you to be uh, more righteous and more reliant upon him. It's Philippians 2, 12 through 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Um, God is actively working in your midst, especially, uh, we, we might say, especially when you're um, experiencing trials, because he's doing a work of refining you um, and causing you to be more like him in relying more heavily upon him. And then there's this phrase, um, this, the second part, and that's uh, God is able to keep the unrighteous under punishment <clears throat> until the day of judgment. So that's interesting because you have punishment, you have a timeline of punishment, and then you have judgment. And for us, that seems almost backwards because doesn't, isn't punishment supposed to come after the trial, after the judgment, after the conviction? Um, isn't that when the sentencing is supposed to happen? Um, so how is it that God can keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment? And I think Paul gives us the clearest commentary on this in, in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to him. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and in their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then listen to this next part. How does God, what, you know, there's, there's a therefore after this. Um, and so what does God do to respond to this? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so this discussion of keeping the unrighteousness or keeping the unrighteous under punishment has to do with um, God giving uh, sinful man over to his sinful nature and removing his uh, hand of restraint from it. 
And so um, for you and me, he did not allow the logic of unbelief to, to fully carry itself out. So we were, we were unbelieving and uh, we were fully fallen in our nature. Um, and instead of leaving us in that state until the end, God reached into um, our sinful fallenness and gave us uh, new hearts so that we can um, know and believe his word and believe him. And so um, that is part of the delivery of God, uh, that, or that's part of the delivery of the people of God from unrighteousness. Um, and, and so when you take that, it's kind of the opposite of what the uh, verse here is saying. And so when he's, when he's not delivering uh, people from their sinful nature, but rather is keeping them, uh, he's, he's allowing them to stay unregenerate. That is how he keeps them under punishment until the day of judgment. Um, yeah, so um, God is able to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And I think an important part of that is that God um, doesn't owe his creation salvation. Uh, he doesn't have to save anybody. He doesn't have to um, cause anyone to know him because, again, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, no one seeks after him, not even one, and the wages of sin is death. And so God doesn't have to uh, course correct us the way that he has in Christ. Um, he can allow, he can rightly respond to um, sin with wrath, and, and that be right and good. And so um, he, he has rights over his creation. I mean, he's, he's allowed to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And that leads us to our third verse today, uh, which is 10a, particularly the false teachers. So if he's able to keep people under punishment, he can... Uh, he can highlight a group within that and say, particularly, um, these people um, are being held until the day of judgment. So verse 10 says, And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So again, these false teachers um, who have risen up are not Unitarians, <laughs> we should say. They're, they're not Trinitarian heretics, or, you know, they're not people who um, believe something different about salvation. These are men who are committed to indulging in the lust of defiling passion and who hate correction within the church. Um, and so false teachers and heresies can come in, uh, in many forms, uh, some of them doctrinal and some of them moral. And, uh, you know, the way that these men justify their immoral behavior is by saying there is no final judgment. So you can see how Peter's kind of addressing that in the, in the previous verse, but is also he's pressing on this ideology and saying, uh, especially those who, you know, they deny the final judgment, and by doing so they can justify themselves uh, in indulging the lust of defiling passion and in despising authority. So if you take away the final judgment um, in the uh, justness of God, the justice of God in responding to sin. Um, simply do what you want. <laughs> that's what these men were. That's what these men were saying. 
and their books were flying off the shelves um, in the early church. And so um, these men who deny the judgment of God um, are uh, they're entrapped by this sin and uh, have no hope of getting out of it unless God delivers them from it. So um, along those lines, let's take a look at Matthew 18, verses 5 through 9, and see what uh, Jesus and his ministry says about false teachers. And then we're also going to go to Malachi 2, uh, 1 through 9. So if you want to go to Malachi 2 first, poke your finger in there, and then go to Matthew 18. So Matthew 18, 5 through 9. Um, the disciples are asking, uh, who's the greatest? And Jesus says, um, him who comes like a child. Uh, him who humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the, in the kingdom of heaven. So he kind of elaborates. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. When Jesus is pronouncing woes, this is a big deal. He's not just kind of giving a, a commentary. He's pronouncing judgment. He's saying, woe to the world for the temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptation comes, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Temptation is necessary, but woe to the one who brings it, he says. Um, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter the life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Um, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So Jesus is specifically addressing um, teachers who are going to uh, lead the church astray. And uh, he says that it's better for them to have a 2,000-pound rock tied around their neck, you know, like a pendant, and to be tossed into the sea. It's, it would be better for them for that to happen than for them to lead the church astray. Um, this is how seriously God deals with um, false teachers within the church. Um, Malachi 2, 1 through 9, says the same thing. Um, so these priests have ri risen up uh, in Israel and are leading the people of God astray. And now, O priests, this command is for you. This command is for you, false teachers. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you do not lay, the, lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away from it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him uh, was one of life and peace, and so forth. Spreading dung on the faces of the false teachers in Malachi, uh, and completely shaming them openly in the streets. That's, that's the idea. God deals seriously, and particularly with false, te with false teachers, because these people are afflicting the church. They're, they're leading people astray. Um, and so God, in uh, 
pouring out his judgment and wrath on them uh, finally is not wrong because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But also him doing it here and now in the world is not wrong, like we saw with the flood, like we saw with Sodom and Gomorrah. And those things are, are pictures of that final judgment that's coming. And so um, along those lines, we should have a, a great hope in a God who is uh, fiercely devoted to preserving his people, um, not only their doctrinal integrity, although that's uh, primarily important, but also their moral integrity, which is also primarily important. Uh, God is committed to preserving his people um, from false teachers. And so those who rise up against, uh, against God and against the church, um, God rightly and strongly responds to them. So, um, what we should consider, those things being said then, is, uh, well, now what? What, what, is, what does this have to do with, with you and me? Um, how can we follow Peter in looking back to the past uh, and then seeing a future hope that's pictured in the, in the past and then having a, a, that hope that's in the future out there somewhere uh, presently abide in you? How can you have hope in something that hasn't happened yet? Um, well, we should, we should see that God is able. Um, God who is able to um, protect his people and deliver them uh, from not only flooding the whole earth or destroying a city with uh, volcanic fire, um, but he's able to preserve his people from false teachers and from um, the temptation of immorality as well. And so for you and me, we, uh, we have hope in a God who is able. Um, and that's the basis of how we can persevere and how we can um, push forward and um, endure the struggles and trials of life that, that come upon us. And so these, uh, uh, the, <laughs> the false teachers that rose up against uh, the early, early church that Peter is addressing, um, they were actually in really and deeply and uh, problematically affecting the church. And um, so we're, we're not, when you become a believer and you enter into God's covenant with his people, you're not delivered into a bubble-wrapped Christianity in which you're never going to experience uh, any trouble or trial whatsoever. Um, and that should be familiar to each of us. Um, when, God has, when God delivered us, um, Every situation in the world didn't just become okay. And so um, when those things are, are happening and when we're discouraged to um, not trust in God, we, we, have to, we have to follow Peter and, and say, look at how faithful God has been. Um, historically, in the Bible, yes, we, we can look back on those things. Um, and also you can look back on uh, situations in your own life in which God has been faithful and has delivered you. Um, I guess consider the opposite as well. Like, what if God, what if God weren't, cons uh, what if God weren't as committed to protecting a people? Uh, what if He weren't so committed that He wouldn't deal with false teachers? Presently, um, we would, <laughs> we would just be getting crushed and crushed and crushed and crushed and have no hope for future salvation. Um, 
but God is actually actively preserving his people. Um, so we persevere. <laughs> the perseverance of the saints is a real thing, and, and God actually does it. So, um, next week, uh, Ryan is going to be continuing in Second Peter, and he's going to characterize what these false teachers uh, look like so that we can help discern them. He mentioned in a previous sermon that at Trinity, in their catechism, they actually have uh, a way of identifying false teachers. And you can identify them by their false doctrine and their immoral living. I'm not sure if that's the actual Q&A, but, uh, you know, that's the gist of it. Um, you can identify them by their false teaching and their immoral lifestyles. And so this next passage in Second Peter is going to give a lot of commentary on that. Um, and so we, we, we need to pay attention to this stuff because the temptation to sin is real and present in your life and in mine. And there are going to be people, there are going to be powers and principles that acknowledge that reality, even if you don't want to. And they're going to, uh, they're going to try to exploit you and to capitalize upon you, uh, those weaknesses. And so that's why we have to have a faith that's rooted and strong. Uh, we need a faith that's not uh, uh, out of convenience, I want to say, or that's not... It's not a trinket on the, you know, it's not a trinket on the, on the mantle. We can just kind of take it down sometimes and uh, look at that. It looks so nice, um, that Christian faith that we have. But no, our, our faith needs to be rooted and real. It needs to be planted by the waters um, because God actively uh, is shepherding us. So, um, yeah. I love you guys. I'm glad you were... Uh, attentively listening and doing things like nodding. Uh, that's certainly encouraging. And uh, we had a member here a while ago who would uh, constantly scowl while you would be preaching up here. And he's, he's really smart and theologically active and really benefited from the sermons, but he would just scowl. So um, I, I wanted to thank you guys for, uh, for listening attentively. Uh, because this, this message is not necessarily the easiest to hear. So um, I'll pray for us. And if uh, Bradley and Preston, if you guys want to do communion for us, that would be wonderful. Um, our God and Father, we love you. And we thank you for um, your word this morning. We thank you for the... Um, promise of deliverance from this, uh, this world that's been corrupted by sin. But God, we also know that this world is not going to just be um, deleted, but that you're going to redeem it. Um, you're going to make it new. And so, Lord, with that, um, with that great hope that we have as believers, um, 
that's grounded in our deliverance from your judgment. I just pray that we would grab hold firmly, white-knuckled of, um, of you and your promises and that we would, um, we would apply your word to our hearts and our lives. So we ask these things in your name. Amen. You're free to take the Lord's Supper. Thanks for listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, or hear more like this, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com.